Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, it's been quite the two days for Tesla. It had its worst one-day loss ever yesterday, just on the S&P 500 snub, so it's not in the S&P 500. Also, GM backing Nikola, which is a little bit of a rival in some senses. Our next guest says that, uh, you know, maybe that downdraft was not completely unexpected, nor was it... Uh, you know, unreasonable. We are up 8% today, but let's bring in uh, our next guest now to tell us exactly why he believes that Tesla may have some room to go below where it is right now. Gordon Johnson is CEO and founder of GLJ Research. So Gordon, yesterday, you know, we were blaming sort of the the lack of inclusion in the S&P 500 for the sell-off. There was also the Nasdaq sell-off more generally. But you say Tesla deserves to be valued much lower than it is right now. And there are several reasons behind that. Take us through some of them. Right. So we have a $19 price target on Tesla, more than 90% downside. That's a 2021 year-end price target, right? Tesla's around you know, just under $400. Keep in mind, Tilray stock went from 200 to five. Uh, first solar stock went a while ago from 200 to 12. So you can see moves like this. Listen, Tesla is a busted growth story. Uh, their U.S. revenues peaked in the fourth quarter of 18. Their global revenues peaked essentially in the fourth quarter of 18. Um, their global, I'm sorry, their auto gross margins peaked in the third quarter of 18. And listen, even if Tesla hits their guidance for 500,000 cars delivered this year, that's only 62% of their capacity, their expected capacity exiting this year before they build two more plants in Germany and the United States. So they're only selling 62% of their existing capacity. Uh, that's a very negative dynamic that just no one talks about. So we think that Tesla, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to um, point out that Tilray, which you referenced, is a cannabis company. They make medicines and drugs and drops and so on. And for solar is obviously a solar module company. Very different stories, though, albeit, you know, the, the, the same type of company in terms of, of what people invest in, I suppose, if, if you want to talk about growth companies. But but so is Amazon. And, you know, you wouldn't fault Amazon for having a capacity greater than what it's delivering upon. So why fault Tesla? Right. So... Amazon is a very different company, right? People often make that comparison, but we think Tesla's more like AOL or BlackBerry, right? They're the first out with EVs, and now everybody's coming with competition. Um, so I think there's big misconceptions out there. Tesla does not make their own batteries. I think a lot of your listeners think they do. They buy batteries from Panasonic, CATL, and LG Chem. LG Chem just signed a deal with GM. Anybody can buy those batteries that Tesla buys. Panasonic, anybody can buy the batteries that Tesla buys. And the same with, uh, with CATL, and CATL has a million-mile battery. Listen, people talk about you know, EVs being disruptive, electric vehicles being disruptive. Here's the reality. In the United States, 2011 to 2019, uh, total EVs, not just Tesla, total electric vehicles have went from 0.3% of the market to 1.4%, right? You know, that's not disruption. And globally, EVs, 2011 to 2019, I went from 0.03% of the market to 1.7%, 1.7%. So both in the, in, in the world and the U.S., despite billions of dollars of government incentives, you know, basically handed out to people buying EVs, people just don't want to buy them. So they're not disruptive. And with respect to Tesla, 
listen, Tesla's not a technology leader, right? People talk about full self-drive. They have this thing called full self-drive that they sell for $8,000 a pop. We think it's vaporware. We think it doesn't exist. Consumer Reports just did a review of it. It was a scathingly negative review. And Elon Musk is on record in 2018 saying Consumer Reports is always, um, always fair. They said it's not what it's cracked up to be, and it's dangerous for the driver and other people on the road. And Navigant ranks Tesla dead last and full self-drive. My point is, I think that a lot of your listeners will probably think they're ranked first, given where the stock price is and how people say they're a tech leader and disruptive. But the reality is just so much different um, than, um, you know, what people think. And we think as numbers come out, you know, things are going to look bad. One other thing, if you take away the one-time credit revenues, right, Tesla basically gets taxpayer incentives to sell credits to other automakers who previously weren't, sell, weren't making EVs. Now every automaker is making an EV. But if you take away those one-time credit sales, over the past 24 quarters, and only four of those quarters has, te- has, has Tesla been profitable, the most recent of which was 3Q9, 3Q, um, 3Q19. The point is, um, even in 2Q, this most recent quarter, taking away those one-time sales, they lost $300 million on the net income line. This company is a perpetual loss-making company, excluding those, excluding those credit sales. And those credit sales, they're guiding down 50% in the back half, and they're going to basically go away next year. So, so it sounds like you have secular arguments based on, you know, people's preferences for EVs and you have sort of individual problems with Tesla itself. We're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you what you think of Nikola. Do you think Nikola is also, you know, smoke and mirrors as you seem to think Tesla is? Well, one other thing I want to highlight on Tesla, right? If you go to one q 19 Elon Musk said they were going to be profitable going forward forever and they never need to raise money again. A month later, they lost $700 million, and since then, they've raised $10 billion, right, when he said they're never going to need to raise money again. Just last year, right, they said they were going to have a million robo-taxis on the road this year. They used that promise to raise a billion dollars. There's not one robo-taxi on the road. So, again, people, you know, people talk about these promises that Elon Musk makes, and I, may, you know, I highlight this, you know, given the battery days coming up. Keep in mind, in 2015, Elon Musk said in a year to two years, you know, Tesla will be able to do over 600 miles on one charge. They still not, they're still not there. So he makes these promises he doesn't meet. With respect to Nikola, listen, the, the GM investment yesterday, no cash was changed of hands, right? GM took an ownership interest in Nikola, and Nikola gave GM shares. Um, with respect to Nikola's technology... You know, right, we're going to actually have to get that Nikola thought from you another time. We are out of time. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us today, though. Much appreciated. From GLJ Research, we had Gordon Johnson. The 10-year yield at 67 basis points, the two stands spread at nearly 54 basis points. What exactly is the focus for the Treasury market right now? Well, let's bring in Jim Vogel of FHN Financial following all of the data and interest rates and rates markets for the last X number of years. Jim, it is great to have you on. It's been a really interesting ride in equities, but uh, (laughs) rates have been sort of like the cows watching equities pass by quite happily. Oh, yes. And uh, what they're really focused on right now is the supply this week, uh, CPI on Friday, and then the Fed next week. Uh, You're absolutely right. Equities for the moment, as far as rates are concerned, are a sideshow. Right. So what is this calm in the Treasury market? Is it just the absolute conviction that central banks are going to, you know, keep underpinning the fundamentals of the economy and that central banks will also save us should inflation get out of control, like Stan Druckenmiller is telling CNBC, or should we see deflation, which Stan Druckenmiller is also telling CNBC? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, um, the couple of things. The the main one is that right now uh, the bond market is more uncertain than many of the pundits and the people that appear on the media on a regular basis. And so they're waiting to see what happens and develops because we do have the election. We've got the what the Congress is going to consider with fiscal stimulus. And then we have the next steps that the Fed is going to employ. Meanwhile, many of the people that sat on liquidity during the early part of the third quarter are continuing to put that money to work. So you have the tension of uncertainty against the need for people to continue to spend cash. That's that, so that interesting. So there's an underlying market. tension there that may not be obvious if you just look at the actual levels. So when do we get a change in that, Jim? Does, does something happen? You know, do, does, does the dam break at some point? It does. There are two things to watch. One is the actual credit experience that we'll start to see from households and small businesses in terms of delinquencies and, unfortunately, uh, the possibility of defaults and charge-offs in the fourth quarter. And then the second is the progress that we make on the twin of vaccine development and then how the U.S. continues to try to adapt uh, to the pandemic without a vaccine today. Yeah. Do you have a base case at FHN, Jim, or just yourself? What is your base case for how the economy reacts? You know, the, we're in the W camp so that the fourth quarter is um, disappoints relative to current expectations. Uh, and that creates the opportunity for people to rethink the idea that inflation is going to run out of control simply because the Fed has changed uh, its approach to managing um, the, their policy for the next four to five years. What did you make of that? Was it something that you were anticipating? And and what does it change practically for traders of rates or those trying to conserve some cash? For the most part, the Fed changes reflect things that are going to happen maybe in the next two to three years. It's unlikely that they come into play at any point in, in 2021. So there's time to consider what the Fed's going to do. The big reason for the change was is that the old policy just simply was not working and it needed to change. It's not a revolution. It's an education process for everyone. Jim, outside of the obvious, you know, unemployment, underemployment, you know, social inequality, all of the things that are troubling the U.S. at the moment and that have potential implications for the bond market. Do you look outside the U.S. for other challenges, uh, obviously China being one? So you have to constantly watch the combination of the demographics of an aging population in Europe and the dependence of the European economy on emerging market growth. So there's stories that started literally five or six years ago that are still going to be with us when we come out on the other side from the pandemic. Yeah, that's for sure. You talk about Europe there, and we did see a move in in yields yesterday. But essentially, if you're talking about negative yields in Europe, you know, how much does it matter whether we have a five or six basis point move in, say, a, a French bond or a German bond Right. We need something like a 30 to 40 basis point change in terms of the outlook and the landscape for European interest rates. And that is perhaps possible by 2022, but it's not a near-term event either. Do you see inflation becoming a problem, you know, in the next decade, Jim? If it becomes a problem, it's going to be because the spending patterns 
and the consumption patterns of the next generation that's coming behind the boomers fundamentally changes their attitude toward um, spending and, and, and the amount they borrow. So inflation comes from, uh, in effect, credit-fueled spending that was the hallmark of the boomer generation. So far, that has not been absorbed uh, by the cohort coming up that, that is already past the boomers in terms of its total size in the U.S. That is so fascinating. And Jim, before we let you go, uh, out of time really, but how is Memphis, Tennessee these days open, not open? Uh, schools are virtual for public schools. We have uh, still a good number of rules in place, but thankfully the COVID infections are falling. All right, that is Jim Vogel. Always love chatting with Jim, who is, of course, based in Memphis, Tennessee. He's interest rate strategist for FHN Financial, Fed Watcher, ECB Watcher, and much, much more. Our thanks to Jim Vogel. Paul Sweeney is off today. Let's get now to our next guest. Gina Martin-Adams is Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and has been watching, I'm sure, the last few days moves with extreme interest. So extreme, in fact, that uh, she talks about momentum extremes and how they're easing. And that means that new equities leadership should emerge. Gina, thanks for joining. So, so are we definitely saying that these are extremes or have we decided yet? Yeah, we definitely did get to a momentum extreme. I mean, we saw by the end of August three of the biggest sectors in the S&P 500, tech, communications, as well as consumer discretionary, reaching multi-year extremes on momentum. At the same time, we saw index valuations rise um, almost exclusively due to tech stocks and mega cap tech stocks and the gap between broad index valuations as well as uh, and index valuations excluding those tech stocks reached a multi-decade high. So we certainly did reach an extreme point in time. Now the question is where do we go from here? What does extreme really mean? Because I think that your natural reaction may be, oh, quite fearful on the other side of an extreme. But what you can see and what I, you know our view is we'll actually see PEs normalize. We'll most likely see leadership shift to other cyclical sectors. Um, and it, we could be in for a choppy period in the interim as we see that leadership shift. But there's still very little evidence that the broader bull market is coming to an end or anything like that. It's really just an adjustment from extreme levels. Sometimes those adjustments take you from, uh, you know, upside extreme to downside extremes. But so far, it looks like more of a normalization from what were pretty out of balance um, conditions by the end of August. So talk to us a little bit about the new leadership that you say will emerge. You gave us some details there, but are we talking about a post-pandemic world in which investors just value stay-at-home stocks and real performers like Amazon that can just get consumers what they want? to their doorsteps immediately, uh, yeah. much richer than other companies. Yeah, I, I think that we'll see some normalization of that. I mean, we certainly have seen valuations expand enormously for some of the COVID-19 winners or some of the more sort of persistent earners over the course of the last six months. What we're expecting to see into 2021 is more normalized conditions emerge where some of the most beaten down cyclical groups like industrials and materials, uh, some of the consumer discretionary names outside of, of Amazon 
are expected to lead an earnings recovery. And in an environment where they lead an earnings recovery off of a very low base or not, you should see some leadership migrate to those names to take advantage of that earnings recovery. So a lot of this depends upon what the outlook looks like. How much do economies improve? How much do we see consumers sort of go outside of their homes, visit restaurants, you know, resume pre-COVID type of activities over the course of the next six to 12 months. But if you look at the consensus forecast, very differently than the environment we've been in for the last six months where tech and healthcare have taken a very, very strong and consistent earnings lead, we should see earnings distribute, earnings growth distribute to more sectors and importantly to different sectors over the course of 2021. And that should create a migration to groups outside of, of tech and healthcare to some degree. So does the P.E. gap between tech and and by tech, I suppose, I mean the biggest five tech companies and some of the rest, even in tech, will that close, Gina? I think it should. I mean, there's some argument to be made that it doesn't necessarily need to close by uh, valuations falling for tech stocks. You could see valuations for the rest of the market start to catch up to tech. When we look at the broad market and we try to uh, determine what a fair value multiple for the index is, we find the result of extremely low interest rates in combination with a likely double-digit earnings recovery into 2021 supports a fair value PE for the broad market of well north of 20 times earnings. Currently, uh, the market is trading at about 20 times 2021 earnings, even including those big tech stocks. So there is room for some re-rating still in the non-tech areas of the market. It's difficult to argue that you would need to see tech valuations move higher in an environment where their earnings dominance is starting to fade a little bit. So it's unlikely that tech multiples continue to expand. They may even normalize by coming down a little bit, meeting somewhere in the middle, the rest of the market as the rest of the market starts to catch up. Fascinating. And give us a time frame for this, Gina. When, when is the latest that this might happen? Yeah, so our sector scorecard actually started to signal as of September 1st, we put out the scorecard, and it's the first time that we saw tech fall out of the top three sectors on the scorecard since 2018. Um, We saw materials, industrials, and discretionary stocks already starting to rise. There is some evidence, uh, even as of August, that value, um, the value factor in the S&P 500 anyway, was starting to outperform. If you look at the long, short value factor, uh, it performed better than quality uh, or volatility or momentum in the month of August for the first time in some time. So we're already starting to see some evidence of this rotation. If you look at the last five days, even, material stocks are up. Uh, while the rest of the index is down. Industrial stocks have fallen half as much as the index. So I think we're starting to see a little bit of this rotation now. Will it continue? Really depends on some solidification of that earnings outlook. I do think we need to go into third quarter earnings season and see companies start to confirm that they do see a better environment emerging into 2021. They do see order flow improving. They do see manufacturing activity starting to pick up around the world, Um, maybe even some references to the weak dollar as a support to their multinational operations and multinational uh, economic activity starting to improve. So uh, I do think we'll we'll go through a period of, of, you know, really assessing, reassessing, you know, probably see a choppy market 
as we go through this transition, but ultimately it will depend upon earnings really proving the case to broaden out exposure in the S&P 500 beyond these COVID winners. Yeah, it really is fascinating if you look at the value index versus the growth index and how they've performed. The value index is down 12% since the beginning of the year. The growth index is up 20% since the beginning of the year. Very briefly, we're out of time, but I did want to ask you, you know, does it matter who are the players here, whether they're, you know, big hedge funds or big pension funds or Robin Hood investors? Yeah, I think it matters to some degree. Um, you're certainly seeing a heightened amount of interest in specialty packaged products like ETFs. Um, you know, obviously the triple Q products have driven a lot of the flow over the course of the last couple of months. That does indicate that this sort of um, presence of the retail investor is significant. Our work says the retail investor flows are 20% of the market. They've historically averaged about 15% for the last five years. So there is more retail participation in this to the extent that some of that gets washed out through this um, this tech mm-hmm. sort of adjustment, I would suggest that's somewhat healthy. We want to have less speculation and more yeah. investing. Gina Martin-Adams, always illuminating speaking with you. Thank you, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, Gina Martin-Adams there. All right, AstraZeneca in the news today. One of the candidates for a vaccine, of course, is AstraZeneca's. And we got a report yesterday that there was some adverse reaction in one patient or perhaps more. Today, the FT is saying that trials may resume next week. To make sense of it all, let's bring in Sam Fazelli, Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst and Head of EMEA Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Sam, what exactly is going on at AstraZeneca HQ? On Twitter yesterday, for example, there was a lot of discussion about the difference between saying the word adverse effect and side effect and so on. So just bring us up to speed with the story. Yeah, hi, Bonnie. So, um, I mean, adverse effect, side effect, toxicity, safety signal, they're all the same kind of thing. So uh, um, I would just see this as obviously a sufficiently big enough safety signal for the company to have decided to voluntarily hold the trial. Once they've done that, though, it's not necessarily up to them to restart it. They would have to satisfy their data safety monitoring board, which every trial has, and the regulators that it is safe to restart uh, um, the trial and, and, and continued dosing uh, patients. So um, whether the company thinks that it would be over or not must be something to do with uh, what they're talking about with regulators. But at the end of the day, it is them who are going to decide to allow the trial to restart. Yes, the FT, I should explain, is reporting that sources to the FT are saying that the trial could resume early next week. And this is a trial, of course, in conjunction with Oxford University. Now, is this a large trial? Explain to us where it sits in the universe of trials right now. Yes, so the biggest trial, which hasn't or maybe just has started recruiting, is one from Johnson & Johnson, which will be 60,000 individuals, and that's international. It ranges from Philippines to Brazil to Chile to many centers in the United States. 60,000. Then you have the 30,000 trials in the U.S., mostly by Moderna, Pfizer, Rayontech, and Astro itself that was just beginning to start dosing. And then you've got Astro itself, which has got the biggest trial that's already been running is the U.K. trial where this um, adverse event was recorded, which is 12,334 as of the latest update in terms of subjects. So these are big trials. Uh, you know, if you add that up, add that up you, you, you surpass 
150,000 uh, subjects. So um, J&J leads on that one. Exactly. Now we should mention that obviously placebos are involved here as well and that's what makes it a trial and, 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 and that's how we get vaccines eventually. So not all 150,000 are dosed with the drug that the, the drug maker is making. Explain to us whether the AstraZeneca trial in the UK is the same as the AstraZeneca trial in the United States. You know, so the Astra trial in the United States, when it starts, is a uh, standard uh, one dose and then a booster. The one in, uh, so booster being 20, uh, say about four weeks after the first dose. The one in the UK started off as a single dose vaccine trial. And then at some point, and I think the first injection, I can't remember exactly, was sometime in early June, first half of June. Um, and then um, at some point, the company decided to move this to a uh, two-dose trial. So there are individuals in there who had a second dose, not necessarily four weeks after, but six weeks after or eight weeks after, which, of course, in a trial that already has many arms in it, if you count it, depending on how you count it, it could be up more than 10 arms, 10 different groups of tests being uh, conducted is it really makes it difficult to figure out what kind of data you're going to get out of that especially when you've kind of mixed it all up a little bit with deciding in the middle of the trial to give two doses yeah exactly i also want to just clarify that the suspected serious adverse reaction was suffered by one participant in the UK, as far as we know, and that participant fell ill with a rare inflammatory condition called transverse myelitis, according to two people familiar with the trial who spoke to the FT. So we really don't know exactly what this individual came down with. We don't know if it was one individual, and we really don't know if it was because of the AstraZeneca injection, right? But we can sort of assume that, no. that it had something to do with it. But we also don't know if that individual was given a real injection or a placebo. So there are many questions to be asked and answered. What's the normal, you know, adverse reaction that's allowable for uh, a vaccine? Presumably some people in every trial have some kind of an adverse reaction. Sure, sure. Um, I I would suspect, uh, just to to, to a point that you made, that the, the Data Safety Monitoring Committee knew that this is a vaccinated individual. Uh, because they are unblinded to the data that comes through. They can see everything that's coming through. Mm. And I suspect they wouldn't have stopped it if it was just a uh, a placebo. But the sorts of um, um, adverse events, remember in these trials, people are told anything that goes wrong or anything that's out of the ordinary, record it. So even if they have food poisoning, they have to record it, which is then afterwards when you do the data triage, you try and figure out what's related to the vaccine and what's not. Um, but, you know, high temperatures, um, chills and aches and fever, and well, fever, as I just said, um, some perhaps fatigue. Those are the sorts of things that are very normal with a vaccination and, um, and similar to what you get when you've um, got a, uh, a virus that's infected you because you're basically activating the immune system and those are related to the activation of the immune system. Sam, it's always so fascinating speaking with you. Very clear explanations for what's going on and and what most of us don't typically know, even though these trials go on all the time for all sorts of drugs and treatments. Our thanks to you, Sam Fazali, Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst and Head of EMEA Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.